This month on Security Management Highlights. If you're one of the 230,000 people crossing between the United States and Mexico, you'll probably face an average of 30 to 90 minutes of waiting in line to cross. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to talk about her cover story on the U.S.-Mexican border and the problem of massive wait times, which are affecting the economy, security, and more. The FBI, they're now demanding that Apple create a unique version of its operating software to bypass that particular security feature. There's a big debate going on between Apple and the FBI regarding encryption. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates stops by to tell us what the arguments are on both sides. You really can't forcibly change an employee's behavior, actions, attitude, but you can issue an invitation to change. Dealing with difficult employees is an inevitability in any manager's career. Senior editor Mark Tarallo stops by with advice on how to handle these tricky situations. Plus, a member spotlight interview with threat assessment professional Steve Albrecht, CPP. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. International trade and growth have exploded across the U.S.-Mexico border, but infrastructure and security simply cannot keep up. That's the issue our Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explored in this month's cover story, as well as what's being done by government and the private sector to address the challenges. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Your article this month is the cover story on border security, and you talk about a specific issue at the U.S.-Mexico border, which is bottlenecking. It's just this effect of people waiting in long lines and commerce kind of being affected by that. So highlight and illustrate for us what that problem looks like and how we got to where we are today. Well, there's obviously a lot that goes into securing all 2,000 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border, but I focused on the ports of entry, where the more standardized security practices occur. If you're one of the 230,000 people crossing between the United States and Mexico, you'll probably face an average of 30 to 90 minutes of waiting in line to cross. It depends on which port you're entering through, but typically you'll wait in line until a U.S. customs officer can check your identification and potentially inspect your vehicle. One of the biggest complaints of most anyone living in the El Paso Juarez region is related to border wait times. The folks I spoke to say the ports are clearly understaffed, and a lot of the times there's no rhyme or reason to extended waiting periods. And this whole process is even more onerous for commercial and freight trucks crossing through. All of this typically leads to the bottlenecking situation at ports of entry that you mentioned. So give us some context to this issue, which you write is is a very important part to understand. How has the border evolved over the years, and what's the level of government involvement when it comes to enforcement? So Mexico and the United States have always been significant partners in trade. After the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, came into effect in 1994, the free flow of goods, services, and people across international borders blossomed. Binational trade has grown sixfold over the past 20 years. Investors flock to industrialized northern Mexico, enticed by lower operating costs and proximity to international transit hubs. In the mid-90s, infrastructure along the border was bolstered with highways built and bridges strengthened. At the same time, an influx of capital and industrial growth, along with an internal migration of Mexicans to booming Juarez, created an explosion of population and industry. But after the attacks on September 11, 2001, everything changed. 
the U.S. Department of Homeland Security was created and took over customs operations along the border. Unprecedented security measures were implemented. The divide between the U.S. and Mexican border security practices grew. The global economic turndown halted infrastructure development along the border. The spike in drug cartel violence from 2009 to 2012 stymied the flow of industry growth and foreign investment in the region. Now, the U.S. Customs is in charge of staffing ports of entry, but they are underfunded and understaffed, causing these really long wait times. There was even a law passed two years ago allowing DHS to accept property and monetary donations to bolster border staffing and infrastructure. Cities such as El Paso have agreed to this, and they subsidize overtime pay for customs employees. So definitely we see that there's a huge problem, but can you really break down for us why it matters and what the consequences will be if it's not fixed and so forth? Honestly, on its face, the wait times at these ports, which are some of the busiest in the world, is just unacceptable. It's a fact of life for the people who live along the border, and it's a bit ridiculous that sometimes only 4 out of 10 customs booths are open during rush hours. But besides the inconvenience, these wait times have more long-term effects. Wait times can stymie local businesses that rely on the flow of people and goods across the border. In fact, some estimates find that wait times cost up to $12 billion a year and can lead to the loss of some 54,000 jobs in the United States alone. And a sluggish border with inconsistent security measures creates opportunities for gray and black markets to flourish. It's a bit difficult to say, as the North American economy is really changing rapidly. So there are things being done, and talking to your sources, it sounded like there are some initiatives, a couple of programs that are trying to help solve this problem. What did they say about the future of this issue? More large corporations are pulling their manufacturing operations from Asia to Mexico, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership will really impact how trade flows as well. And there are a number of pilot programs in the works to increase border efficiency, such as pre-inspection and cargo pre-screening programs. And these seem to be making a difference little by little. Well, thanks for explaining all this to us. And one of your sources, Patrick Schaefer, from the Hunt Institute for Global Competitiveness is going to be featured in our bonus episode. So we're going to even dig deeper into this issue and talk more about the initiatives being done. So make sure you listeners check out that bonus episode later this month. Lily, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Holly. Technology company Apple and the FBI are in the middle of a heated battle over encryption. At the center of the argument is the cell phone of a terrorist responsible for the November 2015 San Bernardino shootings. On Monday, February 29th, a U.S. magistrate judge in Brooklyn ruled in favor of Apple, stating that the government does not have the authority to force a company to crack its own security protections. But this legal victory is not the end of the road. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates stopped by just before that ruling to bring us up to speed on the issue. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. So let's just do a quick overview of encryption. What is it and why is it important for privacy and security in general? Okay, well, encryption is the process of converting messages, information, or data into a form unreadable by anyone but the intended recipient. So people believe that this started off with initially using hieroglyphics and not in the traditional way that they were supposed to be used to change the message. And then this has changed over time, and now we associate it with computers and how we, you know, secure data within your computer. So say, like, when you purchase something at the store and you swipe your credit card, then that transaction is sent somewhere else, and then 
the data is encrypted, so someone can't steal your financial information. Encryption was primarily used by the government in financial institutions, but that changed after the Edward Stone leaks in 2013. People became much more concerned about government access and surveillance of their data, so there was a big push to encrypt more data. Lots of companies came out, especially Apple in 2014, and said that it was going to make its new iPhone operating system use default encryption. That would make it so that Apple, if it didn't have your passcode to get into your iPhone, it's usually like a four to six digit code, then it couldn't even access your phone without your permission. So explain to us what's going on right now between Apple and the FBI. We hear a lot about it in the news, but just from a more of a cybersecurity standpoint, what's the argument there, which you do discuss in your column this month? There's been a lot of recent developments. Yeah, so I'm especially glad that we're having this conversation, Holly, because this has definitely been something that's been talked about for a while, but right now it's definitely a very hot topic. So with the San Bernardino shooting, one of the shooters, Sayed Razan Farouk, he had an Apple iPhone 5C that he used. He was given it by the county of San Bernardino for his job. And as we said earlier, that version of the iPhone has default encryption. So the phone was recovered after the shooting by authorities and the county gave permission for law enforcement to unlock the phone. However, it was set up with a passcode and no one knew the passcode. So in an attempt to unlock the phone without knowing the passcode, the county reset the Apple ID password on the phone, but that didn't work. They were unable to get into the phone. And that's one thing that's unique about Apple's system is that when you open up the iPhone, you usually get, I think it's eight to 10 attempts to unlock the phone. And if you use the wrong passcode, you know, eight or 10 times, then it will lock you out permanently and delete the data that's on the phone. So the FBI has not been able to unlock Farouk's phone, and they're now demanding that Apple create a unique version of its operating software to bypass that particular security feature on the iPhone's lock screen. They want to be able to attempt unlimited passcode tries to unlock the phone and they want to be able to enter those electronically instead of manually pushing the buttons on the phone in hopes to unlock it because someone did the math and found that that method would take like five years for the FBI to maybe potentially unlock the phone which is a very very long time you know because they obviously want to have a quick investigation and be able to find out if there's anything on the phone that could lead them to other terrorist suspects or give more details about what happened in San Bernardino. The FBI, they filed a request in court and a judge demanded that Apple comply with the court order and help the FBI unlock this phone. Apple is refusing, saying that it will fight this in court and it wants the government to step back and create a committee to analyze encryption and privacy. And this is because Tim Cook released a letter online just hours actually after the order went through demanding that Apple help the FBI, explaining why Apple was not willing to do that because he was worried that it would set a precedent that will allow the government or other foreign governments anytime that they want access to someone's phone to put in this request to make Apple create a software that would then disable some of the security features that people like on the iPhone. So currently as it stands right now, Apple is refusing to comply and we'll see what happens. Uh, this could go to court. The government could decide to back off. You know, it's kind of all up in the air right now. Overall, you know, we hear a lot from the privacy advocates, especially now that this Apple FBI battle is going on. And they say encryption is ultimately a necessity, plain and simple. What's their take, the privacy advocates that you spoke to? I spoke with Andrew Crocker. He's a staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Civil Liberties team. And they're obviously a very strong proponent of encryption. They've created a Let's Encrypt campaign to help organizations encrypt their information and to 
really spread the word that encryption is a, is a good thing and it's important and it's necessary for everything that we do with technology from this point on. One thing that he did highlight that I thought was really interesting and sort of shows the difference between the law enforcement view of encryption and technologists' view of encryption is maybe there's a lack of understanding of how it works and what can and can't be done. Crocker said he was very concerned by the vague wording that law enforcement and advocates for weaker encryption have been using. He said they envision telling a company that we need access to this data, but not telling them how they're going to implement that, and that it's worrying that they sort of wave their hands at something that even the best technical minds are saying can't be done. And that touches on something that Jim Comey, director of the FBI, has been saying for a long time is that he wants to be able to have greater access and be able to go to Apple and say, we need this information. Can you give it to us or just give it to us? And, and Apple and other technology companies that have encrypted their data are saying that that's, that's not possible. Or we could do that, but that makes our encryption weaker and therefore could be a turnoff and encourage people to use other products elsewhere that are not made in the United States. So it's presenting a big problem and it's really interesting that we're having this case with Apple right now because it's sort of a perfect example of the differences between law enforcement and technology's views on encryption and sort of who will win out. Well, we hope you keep us posted on the developments in this case. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Thank you so much, Megan. Will do. Thanks for having me, Holly. For this month's member spotlight, we talked to Steve Albrecht, CPP, a San Diego-based threat assessment professional. He tells us more about trends he's seeing in the industry, especially as they relate to active shooter and workplace violence issues. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here with you. So if you would, just walk us through your career in security and how you got to where you are today. I've been involved with ASIS as a member since 1995 and a CPP since that time as well. My claim to fame, if I have one, is I wrote the first book on workplace violence back in 1994, a book called Ticking Bombs. I interviewed a double murderer for that book, a guy who killed two people at work. I went to the prison where he was, and I asked him why he did what he did, and that began my career in violence prevention. A lot of people in ASIS kind of have a similar path than I do. I started out as a police officer in San Diego. I worked there for 15 years. I was a sergeant and a domestic violence detective. I went back to graduate school. I went through the Webster University program, which was partnered with ASIS, and got a master's in security management. And from there, I started writing books, and I'd written officer safety police books before. I wrote the Ticking Bombs book in 94, and it was kind of a quiet lull from when the book came out because most of the things around that were around the post office and postal shootings until Columbine in April of 99 really flipped the switch for me and for the rest of the country about how we respond to school violence and workplace violence as a crisis. And now we see it as kind of a more mature subject. It has policy and we have prevention and we have threat assessment teams. It's really become a more mature subject as we look at it over the years. I do have a consulting firm in San Diego. I have about eight subcontractors. A lot of them are former military or law enforcement. We specialize in HR consulting, security consulting, threat assessment, site security surveys. Most of what I do is training. I have a lot of government clients where we focus on training employees, municipal employees about workplace violence awareness and response, really taking their policies and looking at their facilities and, and trying to create the safest environment possible. Wonderful. And what do you see as the trends in your industry? What are clients asking for? What are they mentioning as specific concerns that they have? Well, the trends that I'm seeing in my clients and in folks that I'm talking to across the country are really two things. One is the assessment of the facility, so site security surveys and assessments of the current security posture and picture. And then this movement towards active shooter training for all employees. And I'm not seeing the level of intensity about both of these subjects as much as it is right now. And I attribute that to the post-San Bernardino terrorism workplace violence incident. People are really rattled and there's a sense that they don't think they've done enough and they want to do more. And then the employees are asking for you know a better response 
months in terms of the active shooter training, can we take run, hide, fight, which I believe in. I think that is the national protocol, and I, I agree with it. Can we take that and really boil it down to its essence so that employees know what to do in these types of rare but catastrophic situations? So you said people are afraid that they haven't done enough. So what kind of trainings do you do to help ensure that people are prepared? I'll give you a perfect example of where we have a, a flaw in the run, hide, fight phenomenon. And the use of the protocol is in drills. And what I hear from people is, well, we need to bring in the SWAT team and we have to have fake guns and fake blood and paramedics and firefighters and all that in order to do a drill. I disagree. I think we can do a drill in 15 minutes. And you tell all the employees this is the date and time of the drill. At the anointed time, we're going to say there's a crisis in the lobby or there's an active shooter in the lobby or there's an unusual incident in the building, whatever code word we want to use. Employees have two choices. Leave the building for 15 minutes. Take as many people as you can with you safely and quickly get out of the building. And then the second choice is to go to a safe room and hide out, shelter in place, lock down for 15 minutes. After that time, both groups return, either the outside group or the inside group, return back to work. What we see is, is more people thinking about it has to be a full-on SWAT drill with guys repelling off the roof, helicopters and all that. That's not the way it is. Under stress, we go back to how we have been trained. If we can get people to think about those two things, get out of the building safely or shelter in place, lock it down, barricade, and get ready to protect themselves inside that area, that's, I think, a very useful tool. I want to touch on something you said earlier, which was kind of when the national focus shifted from workplace shootings to school shootings during Columbine. But just in February, we saw a workplace massacre in Kansas. So it seems that in some ways we have lost the focus on workplace violence, but it's still a very real issue. Can you talk about that? I think the school shootings take top precedence in people's mind because it's a soft target. We're, of course, concerned about keeping our kids safe. And, you know, many folks in ASIS like me have kids and are worried about their exposure in either the K-12 or even the college environment. I think workplace violence has taken kind of a backseat to school violence because we're seeing more of these cases at school campuses and there's more of a response nationally and more of a, a sense of crisis about the issue. One One thing I'm seeing in both schools and workplaces is the use of threat assessment teams, and I think that's, again, the wave of the future, where we get the stakeholders, the security, HR, law enforcement, legal, mental health stakeholders together and say, what do we collectively do? So when you do workplace violence trainings, is there a specific focus on it possibly being an insider threat who comes to take out their vengeance or someone with a grudge? How do you train for that? When I talk about the internal threat, I talk about the, the warning signs that employees see with coworkers. I think the critical piece there is not to call them profiles. I think a lot of folks in the early days were stuck on the concept of profiles. You know, white males, 30 to 55 that own guns, that's profile thinking. We're, we're past all that. We're into behaviors. And, and I don't care about race or gender or age or, or whether or not you're in the military. Those are not risk factors to me. What our risk factors are behaviors like depression or anger or being bullied or significant off-the-job job issues or talks about using workplace violence as a solution to his problems. Injustice collectors, people that are hypersensitive and paranoid, those are the folks that we talk about in training as the ones that we want to recognize as being potential problems. And how do we notify senior management, including security, including HR, including legal, to, to come together and say, do we have a concern here and should we be concerned about this person's comments, behaviors, language, what are they saying and what are they doing? And so I think we're seeing an evolution away from the idea of, of profiles and back to behaviors. So what do you think the future holds for these types of trainings? Do you think people are going to be doing more in-house work, bring in more third-party consultants? What do you see happening in the space? Workplace violence and school violence prevention has become really mature topics. I mean, like sexual harassment, we have a policy, we have intervention, consequences for perpetrators, support for victims. And so I think that's going to continue. We're going to see more discussion, especially amongst our colleagues in ASIS with access control, cameras, and, and things that we use for physical security, and also the the 
threat assessment approach, looking at what these people do and putting it into context and saying, what do we do in response? Could be an EAP solution, employee assistance program, could be a mental health solution, fitness for duty evaluation, could be the cops making arrests, could be security doing investigations and, and hardening the target. So there's a lot of things that are going to have to continue to come together because my biggest concern, and I know it's, it's one for you too, is, is the threat of terrorism coming from overseas to here in, in the response to workplace violence, kind of like we saw in the San Bernardino incident. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Yeah, I appreciate it, and, and take care, and, and good luck with the podcast. Finally, there's no one-size-fits-all approach for managers when it comes to dealing with a difficult employee, but there are ways to navigate the nuances of problematic personalities to help foster a more productive, effective worker. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explains more for us. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. You've covered quite an array of topics in your managing column, but this story takes a somewhat different path in that it has just as much to do with the employees as it does the managers. So how did you come up with this topic and why did you want to write about it? I'd say there was two main reasons why I wanted to write. The first one is that many managers say this is a big issue for them. Obviously, in most cases, most employees are not quote-unquote problem employees, but lots of managers say there are a few, and they really take up a lot of my time in terms of how do I deal with them. The second reason I would say is that dealing with this problem really starts from the hiring process, and so I thought it would be good to give managers a heads up that if you want to avoid problem employees, you don't wait until they become a problem, but you're conscious of certain things as soon as you're interviewing them even before they're hired. And I thought that could help managers out. Great. And so what is the manager's role and responsibility when it comes to dealing with a quote unquote difficult employee? I mean, if they're really that difficult, why not just fire them or why hire them in the first place? Yeah, you know, it may come to that for some managers where the problem is so bad that the employee needs to be dismissed. But I think that in most cases that can be changed and an alternate path can be taken. The key thing, one of the experts told me, and I like how she phrased it and in fact it became the headline for the story is she said you really can't forcibly change an employee's behavior actions attitude but you can issue an invitation to change and the way she explained that is you can point out here's a situation here's an issue here's a potential problem and you keep it really factually based like to an employee you've said this in the past you've done this in the past here's why that can be a potential problem here's some alternate courses of action, a calm explanation, and it really gives the employee some alternatives. Maybe opens their eyes a bit. Maybe they didn't realize what they were doing was a problem. So through explanation, through conversation, changes can really be facilitated. So you mentioned some hallmark personalities in your article that might appear in the office and how to deal with them. Can you share some of those with us? Maybe your favorites? Sure. One was what I call the negative Nancy type. And that's someone who they have a negative and also just not a very positive attitude when it comes to assignments, when it comes to trying new things. They often say things like, oh, we tried this before and it didn't work. Or, you know, this is turning out to be a disaster. And this is a good example of what the experts call an invitation to change. Those type of people often you can talk to them and say, you know, here's 
I am sensing this negativity here, and then here's how it's not so productive. It's one of those situations where certain types of negativity or kind of intelligent critiques can actually be very helpful and positive. So this person could have hidden skills in identifying where things may go wrong, predicting problems, and that's a very valuable skill. The manager can try to work with the employee to really highlight that valuable skill and move away from being negative just for the sake of being negative. One of the more interesting ones is someone I called Crisis Charlie, who is often kind of in crisis in the office. And one of the reasons was really interesting was that experts really had the attitude of, I know that can be certainly sometimes hard to deal with, but you really got to tread lightly because they said there could be many things at work. One expert said, which I thought was pretty interesting, insightful. Often crises can kind of spiral when two or three events happen at similar times. Sickness of a parent and then death of a parent. A marital problems and then divorce. And so, you know, you can even have something where like employees' childs get sick and then one of their parents dies. So you can have these juxtapositions that can be really hard to deal with. And that's something where it's a chance for the employer to show we're supporting you, we want to help you. That can really build loyalty and appreciation and that can help the employee and also help the employer. So sometimes, you know, you've mentioned that there might be something really serious that's going on with the employee and it's completely legitimate that they might be feeling negative or have a crisis and that's all understandable. But what about this underlying lack of engagement with the job itself? Are they a lost cause or should the manager find ways to kind of bring that out and discuss it and try to keep the employee? That is often an issue. And some of the experts, one in particular, Michael Timms, who's with he had some really interesting comments about this can happen frequently. You can have a situation, one or two things happening. Either the fact that the employee's out of alignment either means in some cases, it's really not the right job for them. And then the employer can help them maybe find a new job, maybe find a new path in the organization, things like that. But it's often the case where the employee got into the profession for certain reasons, and those reasons are still valid, and the employee still believes in the profession, but there's factors that are causing them to go out of alignment, whether it be day-to-day repetition, whether it would be simple overwork, which can really take its toll on a staffer. It could also be the deeper purpose. Things like mission and the deeper purpose of the job are really getting obscured. They're not really being promoted within the organization. And people then feel, well, what's what's the point of this anyway? I mean, I'm just kind of punching the clock. So those things really can hurt an employee and a manager through repeated conversations, through listening and learning about the employee can suss this out and see what he or she can do to get that employee back into alignment, maybe to see where the importance of the work lies that the employee has lost or to see how the employee is making crucial contributions to the organization's purpose and mission, really just strengthening that alignment. So this is all reminding me of another article you wrote a few months back on emotional intelligence. So what's the bigger tie-in to this column and emotional intelligence and just management overall? Yeah, that's a good point. I see it as a very strong tie-in, and it's really something where the larger focus and direction of management is kind of going in this area, the area of emotional intelligence, emotional engagement, values alignment, things like this. More and more people who do research 
research on management, who deal with organizational issues. You don't just have what some experts say call compliance engagement, where an employee basically says, I got to do this or I'll lose my job. It's really an emotional attachment to the job, being motivated because they think the work is important, because it aligns with their own personal values, doing good in the world, things like that. That's becoming more and more important. And I think it really behooves managers to pay more and more attention to that, because it, research is showing now that really organizational success is often due to that. And the more people can be really truly engaged, you know, on an emotional level, the more success they'll have. Thank you so much, Mark. We look forward to reading your next column. Thanks, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Be on the lookout, as I mentioned earlier, for a bonus episode later in the month that expands on the border security issues we touched on with Lily Chapa. Once again, I'm your host, Holly Gobert-Stowell. Thanks so much for tuning in.